Heritage Park Baptist Church, we make apprentices to Jesus Christ. For more information about our church, please visit heritagepark.org. Um, it is Communion Sunday, um, so no jam today. Just wanted you to know that. Kids, be ready for that. But we do have something special for you. Um, and here in a little bit, uh, anybody who's a follower of Jesus is welcome to participate um, in Communion uh, with us. Okay, uh, so something happened on Wednesday morning at my house. It was kind of crazy. Um, I was in a bit of a rush to get out the door. So I rushed myself to the car with a kid in tow, rushed us into the car, uh, rushed my way out of the driveway. And as I'm pulling away, I think to myself, man, somebody put a rut in my yard. A rut, a rut, like a big old tire mark. Then I looked a little closer and it was exactly the same width as my tire. And I thought, well, I've got some yard work later. Uh, and, and so, so that, that's fine. And, and honestly, if it were two months ago, no big deal. Like you could have parked a semi in my yard. Uh, but now that we've had some rain and stuff, no big deal. But the problem was this morning I walk out. You know, you do the thing where you kind of scrape it back together and kind of pat it down and good luck. You know, kind of please grow again grass. Um, uh, but but just right there on the edge of the driveway. But you go, I'm going to get in the car parked in the same spot this morning. And I step there and almost lose a shoe, <laughs> right? Because it had been churned up and messed up and like kind of semi put back together. And that's a little bit like what we're talking about today. Because it's far, far better for us to have a solid place to stand than for us to lose a shoe <laughs> as we're trying to get somewhere. And, and the, the issue is, is that there are things that are happening in our world, in our marriages, in our parenting, in our homes, in our relationships, at our jobs, in the culture, wherever it may be, um, that kind of create uh, crazy spots in our life and in our world. And if we want a solid place to stand, um, we've we got to be, be thoughtful about how we do that. And I, James is going to push us, I think, this morning. Uh, to stand, if you will, on kind of biblical or godly integrity. There, there's a solidity to it. And so I want to just jump right in. James chapter 5. Uh, I, I, I will just say this. Uh, I'm so glad that Astros won the World Series. This is not an easy passage. Okay, both of those things are true. Here we go. Come now, you rich, weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. Your riches have rotted and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and your silver have corroded, and their corrosion will be evidence against you and will eat your flesh like fire. Whew. You've laid up treasure in the last days. Behold, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you've kept back by fraud, are crying out against you, and the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. You've lived on the earth in luxury and in self-indulgence. You've fattened your hearts for a day of slaughter. You've condemned and murdered the righteous person. He doesn't resist you. Whew. Mercy. James, here's what I want you to know. We're going to talk about integrity in, um, start there. We got three different sections to cover, but we're going to talk about integrity and finances. James did not wake up on the wrong side of the bed. He was not a Phillies fan. I mean, none of these things are true. Okay. What, what I'm saying to you is James is after something, but hear me say, um, he does not, he is not standing against the rich. He's standing against idolatry. Can we say that just like, can you just clear your brain and make some room for that right now? He's not against the rich. He's against idolatry. It's not the number of zeros that is happening here. It's what's going on inside the person who has the zeros, however many there are. 
not against the rich, against idolatry. It sounds like he's just really angry, but, but he's not. He's just against idolatry. There, there's, I mean, in the first three verses here, um, let's read them again. You rich, come now, you rich, weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. Your riches have rotted and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and your silver have corroded and their corrosion will be evidence against you um, and will eat your flesh like fire. You've laid up treasure in the last days. This is almost straight out of the Old Testament prophets. He has this tone about him that you could almost just pick up, pick one of the... Um, Pick one of those names that you're not sure how to pronounce in the Old Testament, and this would be sounding like them. Why? Because he's, he has kind of a, a prediction, but he also has a diagnosis. The prediction goes something like this. Um, your stuff is going to rot, and the very rot that it, that it has, that it experiences, will be the stuff that consumes you. It's as if you um, uh, uh, put all of your hope um, in the radioactive material that you're keeping in your home, And what you're finding out all along is it's killing you. Church family, let's say it. Let's say it in suburbia. Let's live like it's true. The stuff that we have that so many people place value on does not last forever. It just doesn't. It just doesn't. The things that we care so deeply about does not last The things that are advertised to us, sold to us, you want more of, like the things that are prompted in us because it does not last forever. The the diagnostic part, that's the predictive stuff, is that your your stuff rots and the very rot that that we're talking about here will be the fire um, that ends up burning you. The diagnostic part is... Here at the end uh, of, of verse 3, uh, you've laid up for yourself treasure in the last days. What he's saying is that you put your trust in what gets eaten and what gets corroded. And that is the evidence against the state of your heart. That's what he says back um, a, a sentence earlier. Their corrosion will be evidence against you. Th- this tone that he's taking is intended to grab our attention. Does he have it? It's a reminder, the stuff that you have, it will go away. Don't let it be the thing that eats you up. So he talks about a kind of lack of integrity. How how does this happen? How how does the stuff ultimately consume you and why? Um, He talks about that, gives three examples, starting in verse 4. Behold, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, are crying out against you. Let's just pause right there. There's two different cries that are going to reach God. Here's the first one. You owned a field out there, um, and there were were, uh, um, people who were working your field, and you were like, hey, I'll pay you on Friday. Friday's payday, no problem. And then it comes Friday, and you're like, "Ah, it's going to have to be Monday. Well, I'm sorry, not Monday, but Wednesday. Hey, we'll get back to you. Can you call the customer service line? Because, you know, that's the best thing that you could do right now. To Just like, and this is, he's, he's pulling forward from, from uh, Genesis chapter 4. Just like the blood of Abel cried out against Cain from the ground, the wages that aren't being paid that you're defrauding people of, that's what's crying out. That's what he's saying. Why? Why are they crying out? Because you love your money so much that you're not doing what's right. The second cry is at the end of verse 4, and the cries of the harvesters, so not just the folks who work the field, but those who are then going in um, to harvest it, have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. So two different cries reach the ears of the Lord of hosts. Now, if you remember your Old Testament, the Lord of hosts is the warrior God 
He's the God who leads the army of heavens, of the heavens. And so now the warrior God is fired up about the injustice that's happening here. This is one way that people ex, uh, ex, give expression to their idolatry of money. Verse 5. <clears throat> Excuse me. You have lived on the earth. Here's the second way. You have lived on the earth in luxury and in self-indulgence. You fatten your hearts for a day of slaughter. Uh, the, the second way is that indulgence. Instead of, um, instead of leveraging the resources that God has provided to us um, to do good in the world and to see the gospel advance in the world, we use those. We, instead of leverage, it's license. Instead of, hey, this is an opportunity for me to do good in the world with this. This is an opportunity for me to help the gospel go forth. Instead of leveraging for those kinds of causes, things that will last, we use it as license to get exactly what we want, to do what we want. This is what he says. You've lived in, on the earth in luxury and in self-indulgence. And you fatten your hearts for the day of slaughter. Not that any of you would know this unless you're just a Roman historian, history nerd, but um, like it, this was fascinating to me. In 439 AD, AD 439, uh, the city of Carthage fell to a marauding horde, uh, which, you know, there were a bunch of them back then. It fell, though, in part w- without a fight because the people of Carthage were at the local uh, circus. They're at their local Colosseum watching the horses go around and around, and they got invaded when they were being entertained. Instead of being on the wall, instead of being uh, at their post, instead of watching, instead of getting ready to defend themselves, instead of doing all these things, they were amusing themselves, and the city fell without a fight. Let's be people who are different than that. Be people who watch and are, and are ready for the things that, that, that come our way. Last expression of this, verse 6. You've condemned and murdered the righteous person and he does not resist you. Um, there's some debate and conversation about whether or not it's a literal thing. Obviously, if you don't pay people, they starve. So, I mean, that's, that's part of it. But the bigger difference is there's just an indifference. I care about my money more than I care about the person that's in front of me, more than I care about the people that are around me, more than I care about the people that are in my employ, more than I care about the people that I manage, more than I care about the people who are my clients, whatever it may be. I care about my money more than them, and that is uh, terrible for me, and it's harmful to them. Whether or not it's hyperbole, you get the idea. James is after something here, and he wants us to lock in on. You can't be indifferent in this area. And still live with integrity. You cannot be unjust. You cannot be self-indulgent. And you can't be indifferent. So, so then how do we live? How do we live with integrity? I tried to put a little uh, kind of practical thing at the end of each of these. How do we live with integrity in our finances? Uh, there's always a first question that you have to answer. And depending upon your answer to this, uh, then that sets the agenda for the rest of it. Here's the first question. Whose is it? In fact, that's basically the whole ball of wax right there. Who owns it? Whose stuff is it? Is it mine? Or have I been entrusted with it? Have I been, uh, uh, um, hey, would you be my manager of this for these 75 years that you're going to be on the earth? Whose is it? 
Psalm 24, 1 says, the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. I, not only me personally, I not only have been bought with a price, but because as we sang a while ago, my life is wholly bound to Jesus. That means all of me, my financial life as well. Whose is it? It's God's. Second uh, thing, just to live with integrity, to say it's God's and to have that answer over and over and over again. Secondly, just, excuse me, just to practice generosity, to, to regularly be a part of a um, uh, kind of build into your life the discipline of generosity. And what we mean by that, well, and let's just pause here and say, like uh, when you have a recession looming and inflation high and the stock market's on a roller coaster and jobs questions and election year and whatever, when you got all that kind of stuff, we tend, we have this tendency in in us to go, hey, let's just hold on a minute and we'll um, see what happens. We practice generosity, church family. We practice generosity when the stock market's up and to the right and when inflation is up and to the right. We practice when everything's going great guns and when there's a recession. Why? Because the gospel has so changed us that we now are people who... God has been so generous to us, we now are people who are generous also. Practice generosity. Paul in Ephesians chapter 4, I think it's in the Bible app. It won't pop up on the screen or anything, but he says, let the thief steal no longer. But instead, let him work with his hands that he may do good and have something ready to share. That the, the thief becomes the giver. That's the gospel at work. Uh, thirdly, just quickly, um, pay what is owed. It, it, can we just, like, just note that living with integrity means that we pay what we owe on bills and credit cards and taxes and everything else. We pay what we owe. And lastly, and I really didn't know how to get around this or say it any other way, so just forgive the frankness of this. Don't be stupid, okay? Like, don't be stupid with your money. Don't do stupid stuff. Um, And that can be anything from buying things you don't need um, to, uh, uh, you know, not waiting or whatever. And like, just don't do dumb stuff. That's what I would say. If you need a course in that, find the book of Proverbs and read it. That's what I would say. Don't do, don't do dumb stuff. Um, we practice integrity with our finances. And when, when we live, and not unjustly, uh, not um, indulgently, and not indifferently, when we stand on the place that God has us to stand, we find solidity. And there, you know, we, are, we are experiencing integrity. Okay, here we go. A second part. It just gets better from here, people. Like we got past the money one, and here we go. Uh, be patient, therefore, brothers and sisters. Anybody up for this part? Okay. Be patient, therefore, brothers and sisters, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it until it receives the early and the late rains. You also be patient. So let's talk about integrity in our waiting. Integrity in our waiting. Um, We'll just walk this passage through, but let's start here. You're supposed to wait like the farmer waits. Wait like the farmer. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it till he receives the early and late rains. You also be patient. Some people say, okay, I'm waiting on the Lord. And here's what they think. They think that if I'm waiting on the Lord, then I'm just going to find me a chair, preferably a comfortable one. And I'm going to sit here until God like brings the cosmos into line and the stars all get to where they're supposed to be. And boom, the magic happens. This is not waiting on the Lord. Waiting on the Lord is not passive and it is not inactive. If I wait like a farmer, now please don't picture 
Um, uh, uh, the, the farming days of our days, you know, you got acres upon acres upon acres, uh, and you got combines and irrigation systems and all that kind of stuff. Picture you and an acre of land and an, and and an ox and a plow. That's you. That's what you got. And so every day you walk outside and you look at the sky and be like, "Mm -hmm, Lord, we need some rain. In the meantime, though, you don't just walk outside and go, Lord, we need some rain. What do you do? You make sure that your ox gets fed and you make sure that the stuff got sown and um, you make sure that the things were in place that need to. And if you have access to water, you try to get it to the field and and you make sure that the plow is sharp and you um, are contracting with people to come help you harvest and all the other things that you're supposed to do. People think, I'm going to wait on the Lord. Great. It is not inactive and it is not passive. Wait like the farmer. Be patient but do the things that you're supposed to do. Uh, secondly, uh, wait, it says, for the Lord is near. Look at verse eight. Uh, Establish your hearts for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Wait, because the Lord is near. He's near. Not, not just near to you in this moment, but today we're one day closer to Jesus returning. So let your life be shaped by the fact that Jesus is not only in charge of the world, but he's going to come back and set the world right. We talked about this before, and let me just, again, I want to celebrate this. Some of you are runners, and I'm really happy for you. I am not a runner. I'm so glad that you are. We got the, it's in January, uh, the Houston Marathon later in the spring, the um, Boston Marathon, New York City Marathon, all of that stuff will happen. If you're going to participate or if you want to do all that kind of stuff, if you want to watch it, I just think that's amazing. Incredible, awesome, fantastic, wonderful good. I'm not that guy. But picture yourself going through all the training, all the work, all the qualifying, all the stuff that has to happen. You doing all the things that are necessary for you to get to that point. 26.2 miles is a long, long way, people, uh, to be running. And so you're you're doing all the things that are necessary to get to that point. And you are coming down the home stretch and you got 26.1 miles logged. And you're 500 feet from the finish line. And you're like, I'm done. I can't do this. I can't. I won't. I cannot. You put in all that work, all that effort. And it's not that 500 feet isn't something. Some of us wouldn't want to run 500 feet right now. I mean, there's still a challenge out there, but like... You logged all of this other time. Like, why would you continue? Why wouldn't you continue to do this? And church family, listen, some of us are in spots where we are waiting and waiting and waiting and waiting. I myself am waiting. My family is waiting. There are things that are going on in my life where we are waiting. And some of you are in that same spot. And what we don't want to do is be trucking along and do 26.1 and they go, no, I'm out. And then all of a sudden, Jesus shifts things, changes things, moves things. All of a sudden, we're like, oh, if I had only known. We don't want to be the people who spit the bit right before we see Jesus face to face. We wait because the Lord is near. And our lives, are the, our willingness to keep going is shaped by that fact. You don't want to be the guy. You don't want to be the gal. You don't want to be the family. You don't want to be the senior adult and you don't want to be the teenager who comes down to it and says, oh, Jesus, I'm so sorry. I just couldn't wait anymore. 
we will give an account for a lot. Let's not give an account for that. Wait, because the Lord is near. Verse 9. Do not grumble against one another, brothers and sisters, so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. Wait, if you will, because the Lord is listening. The picture here is a parent walking down the hall and you hear some activity in the kid's room. And you just kind of stop at the door and put your ear up a little bit, see what's going on. Make sure that kind of activity is the kind of activity that you want happening. Wait, because the Lord is listening. The judge is at the door, is what he says. Um, and, and so the, the kind of practical application James is pretty clear on. Um, so, so don't grumble. Don't, don't grumble against one another, brothers and sisters. Um, that, that kind of grumbling, that specifically I think that he's pointing at, is the kind of grumbling where I have to wait, but you don't. What does that sound like? Well, phew, must be nice to live on easy street. Well, uh, I tell you what, um, you know, your, your life just seems to be phew, no big deal. I, I mean, good for you, I guess. <laughs> hey, listen, obviously they're not being faithful to God because it's going really well for them right now. Those are the kinds of things. I don't, uh, you know, their marriage is too good. Their kids are too perfect. Um, Their job, their finances, uh, their health, whatever it may be. Like, I'm grumbling because it's going well for them and not for me. And let me just, a little parentheses here just to be clear. Uh, This is not the kind of thing where if I see something in your marriage that I really want, that kind of provokes a jealousy in me, the good kind of jealousy that says, you know what, I need to work on that. This is not that. This is just me griping. And if you hadn't noticed, griping, whether it be in person or online, is no, is no help at all. It just leads to further disorder and chaos. It doesn't actually do anything to alleviate the problem. It's just griping. Wait, because the Lord is listening. And if you need some inspiration to do so, wait, because others have waited too. Look at verse 10 and 11. As an example of suffering and patience, brothers and sisters, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Behold, we consider those blessed who remain steadfast. You've heard of the steadfastness of Job, and you've seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. So wait, because others have waited. You want to draw strength from them? Draw draw strength. Think about the prophets. Isaiah, fabulous, amazing vision of God. Isaiah chapter 6, the angel flies to him cleanses him. And then God's like, man, I need a guy. I need a guy to go. Who's, who am I going to send? Isaiah's like, me, 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 pick me, pick me, pick me. Great. You're the guy. Verse eight, Isaiah six, verse eight, Isaiah six, verse nine, you're going to go and preach to them and they're not going to listen. Their eyes are going to stay blind. In fact, your preaching will actually harden their heart and dull their ears. So good luck. Go get them, kid. Isaiah's like, hold up. Can we go back to verse eight? Cause I need to I want to read, like, Samuel, who has two knuckle-headed kids who don't walk according to the ways that Samuel, the prophet, he got two books of the Bible named after him. They didn't walk according to his ways. Hosea, God sent him to marry a wife that didn't have a faithful bone in her body. And he specifically, in verse 11, mentions Job. You got, if you're not familiar with Job chapter 1, you can go read it later. All of this trauma, loss, grief, problems, pain, horrible stuff. That's bad enough. Then his wife piles on. Listen, dude, just curse God and die, will you? 
And then three friends show up and they do great for a week by not saying anything. But then they start piling on. Well, Job, you know, if you were right with God, this wouldn't have happened. Oh, thank you for that. And so between the trauma and the loss and grief and problems and the wife and then the alleged friends who show up, Job, Job just, he gets embittered. And finally he cries out to God, hey God, what's up? And then he takes a beat down from God. I mean, like, can you imagine? Like you had the trauma and the, the, the marital problems and then the friends who aren't really friends. And then you've got this, this growing sense of doom and gloom. And then you get beat down by God. Like that, that's a thing right there. And he holds it out as patience. This is how you are supposed to live. So how do we wait with integrity? Let me just give you three things to think about. Uh, first of all, put your doubts and frustrations in God's hands. If you're not sure what that looks like, open the book of Psalms. You can basically pick any of them. About 40 to 70 or 80, 40 to 70, like those numbers right there, those are really great. They complain a lot in those Psalms, like a lot. And they say some really honest things to God. And God doesn't kill them. So if you're frustrated or you're disappointed or you're doubting, it's better to go ahead and say those to God. And look, the Bible even gives you language to help you do so. The Psalms can be your best friends. If you're waiting, the Psalms can be your best friends. Secondly, um, focus on the God that you know, not on the activity or inactivity that you don't understand. God, I don't know what you're doing. I mean, like, not a fat clue. I have no idea what's going on. I don't understand why this hasn't shifted, why this circumstance hasn't changed, why this situation hasn't moved, why things haven't flipped, why things haven't changed. I do not understand, but I do know this. You are good. You are, it says here, you know the purpose of the Lord who is, merciful, who is compassionate and is merciful. You're good to me. You're compassionate. You're merciful. You're in charge. I don't know anything else about anything. Those things I do know though. And so I'm going to lock into that. You don't doubt in the dark what you know to be true in the light. And lastly, um, identify and then take the next step. Because of the world in which we live, we tend to want to know what the next three steps are. Anybody with me on this? But typically, you only have to take one step, and then you get to move on from there. Like you, you take a step, and you, then you figure it out. Like we want high beams. God, would you go ahead and just hit the High beams so that we can see further down the road. And God's like, nope, uh-uh, we're driving right here. This is what we're doing. Identify whatever the next step is because waiting is not passive. It is not inactive. Identify and take the next step. The most helpful person, I will be honest, in all that I, as best I can tell, in the modern expression of, uh, of uh, this kind of biblical idea of taking the next step, identifying it and taking the next step, um, it is not a saint, uh, but, uh, this, but is really thoughtful in how uh, she articulates this. And that is this person right here. Anybody? Anna of Arendelle? Kiddos in the room? You know what scene this is? From Frozen 2, yeah. And do you know what's going on? What song is it? Do you know? Abigail, do you know? It's okay if you don't. It's just a screen grab. What are you supposed to do? According to Princess Anna, the theologian. You do the next right thing. That's exactly what you do. You didn't know that a Disney character was so profound theologically equipped for this moment. But here she is, Anna of Arendelle. Thank you. Right up there with Augustine of Hippo and some of those others, Anna of Arendelle. 
do the next right thing. Whatever it is, take that step. And then what you find is once you've taken that step, that the next step becomes available to you. Again, we want three steps, five steps, ten steps. Heck, some of you are like, just go ahead and lay the whole path out. That's not how this works. When you're waiting on God, take one step. Do what you're supposed to do. Last thing, um, verse 12. But above all, brothers and sisters, don't swear either by heaven or earth or by any under, excuse me, by any other oath, but let your yes be yes, your no be no, so that you may not fall under condemnation. Integrity in communication. So we've done this in chapter 3. We've done this in chapter four, and now we're doing it again in chapter five. You think James is kind of worried about how we communicate with one another? Three times in three chapters. Um, Here's what I would say. Verbal manipulation is normal, but it's not good. When he talks about swearing oaths, you get the idea. Oh, by God, I swear this is true. Well, you know, um, honestly, I would say, were you not being honestly just a moment? I mean, like, just like, were you not being honest? But, but these kind of throwaway phrases that we put in play are just, they, they are ways that we subtly, not, most of us, not overtly, but subtly try to say, hey, I want you to believe me. What if the solid place to stand was not the verbalization that we put out? Oh, well, I'm, I'm telling you, I'm certain that this is the case. And I'll put my hand on the Bible. Like, what, what if instead of that, what if our lives were the solidity? What if our integrity was the solid place where people go, I don't know everything about everything, but I know that guy, that gal, when she says that that's true, when he says that that's the way it went down, that's the way it went down. Verbal manipulation is normal but it's not good. We have to endure two more days of political ads and mail. Yes, indeed. Yes. Oh, and spam phone calls and email. And we could just keep going. Listen, it's verbal. It's normal. That manipulation is normal, but it's not good. Let me just give you three things to think about under this. Uh, First of all, it brings us under condemnation. Do you see that at the end so that you may not fall under condemnation? When I am am, uh, uh, bringing God into my own foolishness, I swear by God that this is the case. I'm including him in my stupidity and breaking the commandment that says, don't take the Lord's name in vain. It brings us under condemnation. Uh, Secondly, it dishonors the hearers by, by trying to manipulate them. You're saying, hey, look, I don't actually trust you with the full truth. And so just go with me on this. I don't recognize you as a person who is made in the, in the image of God. And thus I'm giving all you these throwaway phrases. And lastly, it devalues the things that we swear by. That's what he says. Don't swear by heaven, earth, or any, uh, any other oath there. Um, just, just avoid the kind of rashness and paganism that, that is associated with that. It devalues what we swear by. Just be the kind of person who's yes and no. So those are the, there's two questions. How do I live with this? First of all, is your yes a yes and your no a no? Can we just, like, this is all true. I mean, really, we could have brought this up about finances. We could have brought it up in the waiting. How countercultural is it right now? How much texture and flavor to life would it add? How much credibility would it lend to the gospel if my yes was yes and my no was no? In our culture and in our age. Is your yes a yes and your no a no? Secondly, is your communication a conduit of grace? And again, I think this pops up in the Bible app. Um, Ephesians 4 verse 29, let no unwholesome talk come out of your mouth or your fingers. 
Let no unwholesome talk come out of your mouth, but only that which edifies, which builds up and gives grace to those who hear. What if the words that I say are the things that God uses to bring grace to your life, to communicate grace to your life? What, what if the things in my marriage were, that I said were the things that released grace to my wife? What if um, my kids were recipients of the grace of God because of the things that I said? That is a pretty high goal to shoot for. Is your communication a conduit of grace? None of this happens without a change of heart. We've said this every time we talked about communication. We've said this. It's out of the overflow of the heart that the mouth speaks. The problem is not so much with what's happening in here, it's what's happening in here. Therefore, we need, as it says at the end of verse 11, the, the, uh, the Lord is compassionate and merciful. Therefore, we need the Lord. We need a God who has compassion on you and me and who has mercy on you and me. And the good news is, is that's exactly the God who is. He sent Jesus to the cross in our place and for our sins. The verbal ones, the, the impatient ones, the financial ones, and on and on and on. All of our sins he carried in for us, in our place, for our sins. And then he rose again. Having died, he rose again to give us a whole new kind of life. What kind of life? A kind of life that can look like this. A kind of life that James could say, that's the people I'm talking about right there. Those are the people that they know the compassion and mercy of God. And it has so changed them, so transformed them that they are new. And that's what we come to remember with communion. We come to remember that the Lord is a compassionate and merciful God. We come to remember that God has done something for us that we could not do for ourselves. So, if you need to um, close your stuff up, set it to the side, we're going to give ourselves a moment and then pray, and uh, then we will celebrate communion together. I, I want to say this as you're, as you're uh, kind of wrapping things up here. If you're not a follower of Jesus in here or you're watching online and you're not a follower of Jesus, there's nothing more important that we could have a conversation about. We would love to visit with you about this. Just find one of us after when we'd be happy, so, so happy um, to visit about this. For those of you who don't know what's about to happen, we've got five stations around the room. We are um, glad for you at your pace uh, to move towards one of those stations, grab enough elements for uh, your family, and then just step to the side and you can celebrate communion as a family. Church family, if you've got somebody around you who looks like they might need help getting the elements, uh, please make sure that they, um, that they get those elements and uh, just be a help in that way. Let me pray for us. Um, your word says, Father, that when... Um, you, you settled uh, in that room the night before uh, Jesus went to the cross. That what was happening was you were representing for them bread like the body of Jesus, broken, blood in a, poured out for us. These are the elements that are in front of us here. And they call us to remember they call us to remember important things. They call us to, like um, in Titus earlier, they call us to insist on these things. So that's what we want to do. We want to insist on them. We want to recognize that you are the God who has pursued us. You are the God who is merciful and compassionate. So I, I pray for every single person in here. That you would show them your mercy. You would demonstrate your compassion. It would be fresh for them as they experience it.
give this to you now. In Jesus' name, amen and amen.